All right, morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke 15 and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Good to see all of you. So Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we have reached the third wonderful parable in this chapter. We'll pick up reading at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this incredible parable that we have reached. I confess that I have longed for, um, well, I suppose years now, since we started going through Luke's gospel to uh, teach this parable to your people. It's been uh, dear to me, or to me, and I'm sure to many others, um, for so long, Lord, it's such a blessing to dig into it. I know it's uh, familiar probably to everyone here, but even as I studied this past week and was blessed to see wonderful truths uh, that I had not seen before, Lord, I pray that I may be able to reveal those to your people as well, or, or I might say differently, that your Holy Spirit would reveal those truths, Lord. And so I, as I regularly pray, Lord, I don't know how else to say it, I just want to do justice to your word and do confess an inadequacy and pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, be gracious to each person here and reveal to them through your word the wonderful truths that you have contained for us as we see uh, so much about the heart of God the Father here. I don't know there's any place else in Scripture that really rivals this revelation of the Father. And so I pray, Lord, that he would be exalted in our hearts and lives, that you would bless this time we have. We ask that you could be pleased with it because primarily it is about you and only secondarily about us, but we do thank you that it's about us in terms of your word sanctifying us, and so we pray for that work as well, Lord. And if there be any unbelievers here, I hope to be faithful to remember to pray for them each week uh, as we gather, Lord. It'd be, it would be foolish for me to think that everyone here is a believer, Lord, and so we'd even ask for the unbelievers that they would have that revelation of, of you through these verses and see their need for a Savior, and that you would draw them to Christ, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So the title of this morning's sermon is, When We Say, Father, Give Me My Share. When We Say, Father, Give Me My Share. So in the last sermon, we finished the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. And this morning, we will begin looking at the third and final parable in this chapter. A couple of things to notice. The first parable deals with losing one out of a hundred. So let's do a little math. What percent was lost there? Huh? One percent. Second parable deals with losing one out of ten. So what percent's lost there? Ten percent. And the third parable deals with losing one out of two. So what percent are we looking at? Fifty percent. The value is also increasing. Do you see that? A uh, sun is going to be worth more than a coin, and a coin is going to be worth more than a sheep. A few other things about this parable before we begin. My ESV expository commentary said this about this parable. It is simply incomparable and is perhaps the greatest parable Jesus ever uttered, which would make it the greatest parable in history. 
the the first two parables primarily focused on god but this parable is going to focus as much on man and in particular man's sin and rebellion we believe god exists eternally as three persons the triune nature of god contains three co-equal co-eternal persons and the first two parables primarily focus on the second person of the triune nature of god the the shepherd who pursues the lost sheep and the woman who pursues the lost coin represent christ as he pursues lost sinners but in this third parable there instead of focusing on the second person of the triune nature of god or god the son the third parable is really a revelation of which person the first person or god the father right this is this parable doesn't deal as much with the son but deals more with the father also the two themes if you remember I, I believe i mentioned this a couple times of the previous two parables are joy and repentance the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing occur multiple times the word repentance occurs multiple times and those are the themes of the first two parables well interestingly joy and repentance are a theme in the third parable but those words are absent so we're not going to see the word joy rejoicing or uh, rejoice and we're not going to see the word repent or repentance but interestingly we get to see something that i think is almost more uh, beautiful than than recording those words the words are absent but we get to see those words described so instead of being told that the father rejoiced we get to see a description of the father's joy instead of being told that the younger son repented we get to see this wonderful description of what his repentance looked like and then the last thing to notice about this transition to the third parable is the first two parables deal with unbelievers who are saved the or a simple way to say it is the first two parables are about unbelievers this third parable focuses on a believer and i think this is so important to to uh, keep straight that i want it to be our first lesson so lesson one the first two parables are about the salvation of unbelievers but the third parable is about the repentance of a backslidden believer so as we move into this third parable just kind of get an elevated view of all three of them because i do suspect you have plenty of familiarity with this third one and in the first two parables you have this shepherd that finds this lost sheep you have this woman who finds this lost coin and is picturing the conversion of lost sinners but in the third parable instead of so the first parable you've got the shepherd going after the sheep you've got the woman going after the coin but does the father pursue in the third parable does the father pursue what does he do instead he waits eagerly and he watches and so do you see the contrast there between the shepherd going after the sheep the woman going after the coin versus in the third parable the father waiting patience, patiently and anxiously uh, for this for this son this backslidden son to return and that's really one of the ways that we see that the the son represents a believer because he is a son he has been converted he is saved and so the first two parables about the conversion of lost sinners but the third parable about the repentance of a backslidden believer and because this prodigal son represents a believer we're going to, i'm going to try to focus on the application for us as believers over these coming weeks with that in mind take a look at me at verse 11. it says and he said 
there was a man who had two sons. Now, let's just remember that the titles, I mean, you can grab multiple Bibles and see different titles or headings or subheadings in those Bibles because they're all um, inserted by man. They're beneficial. I appreciate them. Um, They'll be different throughout different Bibles because they're just sort of people's opinions about what a chapter or a passage or a section of Scripture should be called. And I want to invite you to consider that that's the case. That's the same with the titles of parables. In other words, the the titles of parables were given by different men, and for the most part, they are are helpful, but except in this parable, I think it's fairly misleading to call this the parable of the prodigal son, because the parable, if anything, there's really uh, two lost, or you'll hear it called the parable of the lost son. There's really two lost sons, as we'll see as we reach toward the end of the parable, but I'd go further than that and say the parable isn't even really primarily about the sons. There's some people that think the parable, parable is primarily about the father. Whatever the case is, there's definitely more than just one person focused on in this parable, and all three of the important people are mentioned here in this first verse. There's a father, and then there's his older son, and then his, there's his younger son, and each of these people are very important, and so we're going to spend an amount of time looking at or focusing on each of them and what we can learn from them. Look at verse 12. The younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, I want to remind you of something important, not just for when we read this parable this morning or times that we read the Gospels, but really any time we're reading God's Word. What the Scripture meant to the people in the day who heard it preached to them is what it means to us. So let me say it like this. When Jeremiah was prophesying to the Jews who were about to be taken into Babylon, however they understood Jeremiah's prophecies is how we're to understand Jeremiah's prophecies if we want to understand them correctly. And so however the listeners in Jesus' day understood his teachings or his parables is how we are to understand or interpret those parables. You can, you can pluck them up out of that season or culture or society or whatever the case and put it down in ours, and we are to look at or consider that preaching just like the people did in Christ's day. So the very best thing we can do if we want to understand and interpret Scripture correctly is consider what it sounded like to the people when they heard it, and we want to make sure that we read it that way. So I mention that because... We could lose sight of uh, just how incredibly shocking it actually was when Jesus said this to the uh, people in his day who were listening. They, They would have gasped because this was an outrageous request that the son made here of his father, and then this brings us to lesson two. The son's request was incredibly disrespectful and selfish. The son's request was incredibly disrespectful and selfish. And just look at the way that he says this. Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. I mean, even even if you don't think about what it sounded like in Jesus' day to his listeners, it just sounds disrespectful. There's no please. There's not an ounce of gratitude in his heart. He doesn't say to his father, 
I'm so thankful for how you have cared for me or provided for me all these years. I, I like to step out on my own or just something that would have softened it a little bit, expressed a little appreciation for the way the Father has, has treated him uh, and the whole family throughout his lifetime. Uh, he shows utter disrespect toward his father. Uh, he lacks any love for him whatsoever. I mean, even if you don't put yourself down in Christ's day and consider how it sounds, it just looks rude. I mean, you think of a son talking to his, his father this way. John MacArthur said, the truth of the matter is for a son to say that in the sensibilities of the ancient Middle East and village life would be tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You are in the way of my plans. I want my freedom, and I want out of this family now. I have other plans that don't involve you. They don't involve this family. They don't involve this village. I want nothing to do with any of you. Now, keep in mind, even if many of the Jews in Jesus' day were Christ-rejecting or didn't come to faith in Christ, they were still people whose lives were based on the Torah or the Pentateuch. They were people who had grown up and from the earliest age had been familiar with the writings of Moses or those first few books of the Bible, which they based their lives on. There's a lot more I could say about that, but I'm just going to say this. The fifth commandment, which is the commandment to honor your father and your mother, really rose to the top of, of you know, the life of, of society. And so the idea that you would honor your father and mother, there were few things more important in this culture than doing that. Second only probably to honoring the Lord was the idea that you are going to respect your parents. Uh, we think about Paul's words in Ephesians 6 too, where he said it's the one commandment that contains a promise. And they would have known that. And so the chain of respect was very familiar to people. They know that it goes like this. You've got the father at the top, who's going to be shown incredible honor. Second to him is going to be the oldest son. And then after that, it's kind of going to go down. And you can even see this back in in 1 Samuel, when Samuel goes to anoint Jesse's son. And who does he expect is going to be the son that's going to be shown the honor or chosen as king? The oldest And who does he think is the least likely to be chosen? The youngest, David. And apparently Jesse had thought that as well because he didn't even think to invite David to the the anointing, one of the most monumental moments or pretty much the most monumental moment in that family's history where one of the sons becomes king and David is, is expected to just remain out there with the sheep and not even watch this take place. So my point is, by Jesus' day, everyone is living with this understanding that the father is honored, then the son, and then the younger sons after that. So this younger son, he's not, even, he's not even second after the father. I mean, his older brother was the one who would have more reasonably made a request like this. It was completely shameful for the lowest in the family, the lowest in that line of honor to act this way. In Jewish culture, his behavior was so bad that it actually would have been cause for him to be removed from the family. Another commentator wrote, there was no way that Jesus could portray greater shame upon a person than this act. In the social structure of Israel, this was the supreme act of shame, to say something like this to your father. The son's request was so outrageous and disrespectful that to say something like this would actually bring an end to the relationship. Uh, The son was communicating to his father that he wished his father was dead, but the son's actions also communicated 
that he be dead to his father. The son would have said this understanding that had brought an end to the relationship, that he's saying, I wish that you were dead, dad, but I'm also recognizing that this means that I'm dead to you. And that's, that isn't really my inference. I mean, the, the text says just as much because two times after the son repents and then returns home, what does the father say about him? He was dead. Look at verse 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. Now, why, what did the father mean when he said the son was dead? He wasn't literally dead. He wasn't physically dead. So we know that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being relationally dead relationally dead to the father because of the actions that he had engaged in Uh, so strongly was this view that the family member or son would be considered dead because of this actions that believe it or not it was even customary to hold a funeral they would have an official ceremony a funeral to show the end of this relationship and so the father he would acknowledge to the family that the son has engaged this way and everyone needed to view him as being dead to the family and then they would even have a ceremony or a funeral to communicate that a slap across the face was the typical jewish gesture to show rebuke for such disrespect and so when jesus tells this parable the listeners are going to expect that then the father is going to rebuke the son slap him across the face dismiss him from the family and then hold a funeral and i want to help you understand not just how disrespectful this was but also how selfish it was as you've probably heard before the firstborn would receive a double portion or which is to say he would receive twice as much as the other sons and that's from deuteronomy 21:17. the father shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has for he is the first fruits of his strength the right of the firstborn is his so the son he asks for his share of the estate which would have been one-third of what the older son had received uh, and so maybe you think well may, that probably wouldn't be that much but it probably was because we can tell later that this was a very wealthy family they had some number of servants and when they have this celebration later they're able to hire you know the dancers and the entertainers for this party and so our musicians at least so they're very wealthy so in other words even if this son's brother gets twice as much as him or he only gets one-third of the estate because he gets he gets one-third and his brother gets two-thirds it's still going to be a considerable amount and enough that he knows he can go and and live off very um you know luxuriously for a season of time or sadly very sinfully for a season of time now i want to show you something interesting about what the son was and wasn't asking for if you just briefly turn a few chapters to the left to luke 12 and look at verse 13. look a few chapters to the left luke 12 13 someone in the crowd says to jesus teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me the greek word for inheritance it's kleronomia kleronomia and this is the normal word used throughout the new testament for inheritance 14 times this word is used to be exact and what's important to understand is that when you use this word for inheritance 
or for property, it's not just referring to the goods or wealth that, uh, or estate. It's referring to all of the responsibility and accountability that comes with receiving this property or this inheritance. And so when you use this word and you ask for the inheritance, you're also asking for the management of the inheritance. You're asking for the responsibility to care for the family that comes with this inheritance. You're asking for the leadership involved with overseeing all the rest of the family and the servants. So this word for inheritance means you're in charge of the whole estate. You're talking about being able to provide for the whole family. You're talking about being able to lead all the loved ones who are left, all of the servants that that this family would have had. You're expected to be responsible for them and to lead them. And so this is why that firstborn would receive a double portion when the father died, because the idea is the father or the head of this household has died, and now somebody needs to lead. Somebody needs to take his place. And so the firstborn receives this double portion essentially because he's the individual who is going to take his father's place. And how else is he going to be able to care for his family unless he receives much of what the father had when he was caring for the family? And so to make it really simple, when a son received the inheritance from his father, he had to be willing to take his father's place. It was an incredible amount of accountability and responsibility that came with this position. Now keep that in mind and turn back to Luke 15. In Luke 15, when the son asked for his share of the property or inheritance, the Greek word, it's uh, ousia, ousia, and this is the only place that it's used in Scripture. It's not the same word that's used frequently or used elsewhere for inheritance or property. And Jesus deliberately used a different word for inheritance because it's a word that doesn't involve any responsibility or accountability. And why would that be? Because when this son asked for this inheritance, what did he not want? He didn't want to be responsible. He didn't want to be accountable to anyone. He didn't want to care for the family. He didn't want to manage anything. He didn't want anyone asking him for anything. He just wanted complete freedom and independence from the family. And we know that from the way the rest of the parable goes, right? He just wants to leave and have nothing to do with his family. He wants to write them off, and he wants no responsibility. He wants nothing more than to be able to live as as freely and sinfully as he would like. So basically, he says to his father, I just want my stuff, Dad. I just want out of the family. I don't want anyone asking me for anything. I don't want to be responsible for anyone or anything. Just let me go live my life the way that I want with no accountability. And here's another interesting fact. A son could never take possession of the inheritance until his father died because in that culture, the father was in charge as long as he lived. Even if a father didn't want to be in charge, he's still recognized as being the one in charge. And so the father's authority could never be relinquished to his children, even if that was something that he wanted. So even if a father told his son, this is all yours, this belongs to you, and I can imagine a responsible father as he's raising his sons, he brings his sons along. It's not much different than today. You're trying to teach your children responsibility, and this this father's been caring for this estate and all this property and animals and servants and so forth. And the father is telling his son as he's getting older, this is going to be yours someday, son. You're going to be responsible for this. You're going to be in charge. The decisions that I'm making, you're going to have to make these decisions. And so the father's relaying this to the son, but the father could never say, okay, now is the day that you're in charge. 
because he couldn't get rid of that authority. It rested on his shoulders as long as he draws breath. And so the very best he could do is he could talk to his son about it, but it still belonged to the father until he passed away. He was still going to keep a very strong and firm hand overseeing everything that was done. The father was going to continue to have access to everything that was earned. He's going to have considerable involvement as long as he's alive. But we know that the son was not even asking for this. He wasn't asking to learn responsibility. It could be reasonable for a son to approach a father and say, you know, I would like to learn about what you're doing. Can you involve me in the affairs of the family? Can you, can you help me see some of the decisions you're making and how you go about it and what it looks like? And, and we just bring me alongside you and allow me to kind of serve shoulder to shoulder with you so that I'm prepared for when, when this, this burden rests on my shoulders. That could be reasonable, but that's not what the son says. He asks to be given everything so that he can take off and enjoy it completely independent of his father, have nothing to do with the family, have nothing to do with the estate, and have no responsibility whatsoever. In other words, the son's request could have been reasonable if he wanted to start his own family or have his own business or be responsible or step under the load his father's under and help him shoulder it, but it's really nothing like that. It's an incredibly selfish and sinful request that the son makes to the father. Now, I mention all that because, of course, considering that this father, I mean, if a son's going to behave this way, you can suspect that there, it wasn't like a switch was flipped and then this son has been the picture of responsibility throughout his whole life and then suddenly he becomes irresponsible and selfish. You can suspect that the son has shown his irresponsibility and selfishness prior to this, and the father's going to know that. I'm sure he wanted better for his son or expected that his, his son has, you know, has been somewhat of a disappointment up to this point, but you know, really hoping that someday he's going to change, and then the son comes and makes this request. And so, of course, the father, knowing how irresponsible and selfish his son is, knowing the kind of young man he is, you can guess what the father is going to do. He knows the son's going to be dishonorable with the money and, and ruin his life. And so the father is going to do what? He's going to tell his son no. He's going to say, I'm not giving you anything because I know that you're going to squander it. I know you're going to, it's going to be detrimental to you. You're going to cause problems for yourself, cause problems for our family, probably uh, ruin our name and reputation. The father's going to rebuke the son for his disrespect. He's going to remove him from the family as we already talked about, it would have been common for the father to slap the son across his face for such a disrespectful gesture. He's going to communicate to the family that the son is dead. He's going to hold the ceremony or this funeral for him, announce to the family and probably the neighbors and everyone else who's part of that village life, because everyone knows everyone. Nobody moves in that time. You grow up with people who grew up with people who grew up with people, and you tell them, my son is dead, and that's how we must view him. You're welcome to attend the funeral for him that's what's going to happen. Shockingly, that is not what we read. Look at the rest of verse 12. The father divided his property between them. Jesus's listeners would never believe that a father would do this. Now, we we believe it because it's in God's word. But if you were listening to Jesus preach this parable, I'm telling you, this sounds as absurd as many of the other things Jesus said. And let me just ask you, because we've kind of talked about it over the last few weeks, did Jesus regularly say things that sounded ridiculous or absurd? Yeah, he did. 
He talked very frequently in outlandish or exaggerated terms or used hyperbole to make points. And it's important to understand that this is one more time that would have sounded completely outrageous to his listeners. There's no way that a father would respond this way and give his selfish, immature, rebellious son his inheritance. The people would be shocked at the son's request, but probably the only thing that would have shocked Jesus' listeners more than the son's request was the father's response, giving him the inheritance. One commentator wrote, for a father to do this was very surprising and would cause another gasp rather than strike him across the face for his insolence the father grants him what he wants and you don't even have to live in jesus's day you, you don't even have to think of put yourself two thousand years ago and imagine how this sounded to jesus listeners what reasonable father knowing how irresponsible and selfish his son is would then give that son a bunch of money I mean who does that there's no father that would do that there's no in fact a reasonable wise father starts restricting the son's liberties and freedoms because he recognizes that the more liberties and freedoms that i mean this is how pretty much all of us parent right when you trust your children you give them more freedom when they've shown that they can't be trusted you restrict their freedom well no father is going to do the opposite of that and say you're an irresponsible selfish son let me just give you a bunch of money so that you can run off and live however you want so what is this really about i mean why would jesus tell a parable where a father acts in such an absurd way why would jesus preach something that is so outrageous and unbelievable or why would he he preach something that nobody in his day would believe well, this is just one more example of Jesus using hyperbole or exaggeration to drive a point home, and the point is this, that the Father in this parable is intended to represent our Heavenly Father. And the way that this Father in this parable acts represents the way our Heavenly Father can act toward us. And this brings us to lesson three. Our Heavenly Father might let us have our will to our own detriment our heavenly father might let us have our own will to our own detriment it's true that no reasonable earthly father in jesus's day or in our day would do this but here's the thing this father doesn't represent any earthly father in jesus's day or in our day this father represents what god the father the father in the parable is willing to experience rejection and betrayal incredible mistreatment disrespect and dishonor from his son for what reason because he represents god the father who's willing to experience what disrespect rejection betrayal dishonor from his children how i mean you know this is true how many people or how many times have we sinned against god dishonored him or disrespected him and not been struck down dead i mean have you ever seen someone who calls themselves a believer or have you ever sinned outrageously in a heavy-handed way completely rebelliously against god and kept breathing well why is that because god the father allows the same disrespect or dishonor 
from his children that this father does. The father in the parable extends freedom that's going to be taken advantage of and used sinfully because he represents God the Father who extends freedom to us that we are going to take advantage of at times and use sinfully. The father in the parable gives the son what he wants, even to the son's detriment, because he represents God the Father who will at times give us what we want to our own detriment. And you know this. There have been times where you have seen people be given freedom that you know that they're going to misuse, and God has allowed them to misuse it. He has not created a bunch of robots. We are free moral agents, and being given free moral agents means having the agency to sin or to live rebelliously. To make it very simple, the beginning of this parable is an incredible picture of God the Father giving the sinner freedom to sin. And I I stress this because some people have this very mistaken notion about God. They think that if God doesn't want them doing something, then he's going to what? He's going to just violate our free moral agency and he's going to stop us from sinning. There are people who engage in sin and what is their defense? Well, you know, God hasn't stopped me, so he must not mind it. I mean, if it was really that bad and God is sovereign, he wouldn't be letting me do this. God must be okay with it because he didn't close the door. I mean, I walked through it and the fact that the door was open and I was able to walk through it and God didn't close it shows that it must be fine. But it doesn't work like this. And this parable is a great example. Now, you can keep in mind that I'm not saying there's not consequences. I'm not saying that just because we're given freedom and we use that freedom to sin that things don't go poorly for us. In fact, that's kind of the main point that I'm making, that things do go poorly for us or it is to our detriment. And did this son suffer because of the decisions he made? Yeah, he suffered terribly. Now, if the parable went on that he just went and lived this wonderful, happy life, that'd be different. But that's not what it says. He experienced one of the lowest points, you know, that a Jewish boy could, a, a good Jewish boy could ever experience. Listen to this verse, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So this verse is about the good gifts that God gives us. He is, a, he is a heavenly father, and just as our earthly fathers give us good gifts, our heavenly father gives us good gifts. And I think because of this verse, and probably some other verses I could mention, there's kind of this idea that God is never going to give us anything that is detrimental to us. And if you've ever thought that before, I just want to invite you to consider that there is one thing God can give you that can be incredibly detrimental to you. And do you know what that is? It is your will. The one thing God can give you that is incredibly detrimental to you is your will. You're not a robot. You're not a doll, you know, that God pulls the string. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, God, and we just do every single little thing that God wants us to do. God hasn't created robots. Our free moral agency affords sinful decisions such as rebelling against a loving father, which this parable beautifully illustrates. And I told you in a recent sermon that, you know, as much as I love parables, we need to be careful about drilling down too deeply into them. We need to consider the theology or doctrine that we would build from them. One of the things I told you before is you use um, indicatives supported by narratives 
or if you're considering the truths and parables you can you look for supporting statements or truth from the epistles or build build your doctrine or your theology from uh indicatives or epistles that's supported by narratives or or uh you know old testament accounts not the other way around and so for when when we look at this I, i don't want you to just believe what i'm saying because uh we have just these two verses i wouldn't be sharing this if that's all we had because to me that wouldn't be a, a very strong evidence to to build doctrine from but i'm not building it from this i'm not just entertaining this parable there are multiple examples in scripture which we're going to look at over the rest of this sermon and then probably the next sermon not just of people sinning so understand this we're not just going to talk about people sinning because there's no question about people sinning. we're going to talk about god letting people have their will to their own detriment we're going to talk about and you don't have to take my my uh you know thoughts as as gospel i'll show you the verses in scripture that prove this that god gives people the permission or allows them to have their will to their own detriment when they have been pushy when they have insisted on it when they haven't had soft receptive hearts toward him to be clear we're going to look at people who pushed and pushed and pushed and then god finally gave them what they wanted when it wasn't in their own best interest and i want to talk about this because i think it's very important to know that if we push god he might let us have what we want even to our own detriment or even when it's not in our own best interest and for the first example we'll look at moses and this brings us to the next part of lesson three lesson three part one our heavenly father might let us have our our will to our own detriment part two such as with moses and then you can turn to exodus 3. so pretty much the difficulty i encounter every time i'm preparing a sermon is not getting through quite as much as i expect in that sermon and so when i began this sermon and thought hell well, you know if i only look at the first two verses we're going to be able to consider all these different examples in scripture of god of people pushing and then god giving them their will well it turns out we can only get through one example in this sermon but we'll look at we'll look at some other examples in the next sermon so exodus 3 in the next sermon we'll entertain some of the other examples here's the background that i suspect you're familiar with god meets moses at the burning bush and god tells moses to go to egypt to tell pharaoh to let the israelites go moses makes five excuses you probably remember this right moses was not the most willing servant at this point in his life he's become very reluctant or he acts very reluctantly he makes these five excuses and we'll consider each of them and see how god lets moses have his own will to his own detriment and the first excuse is in verse 11. so look in exodus 3 verse 11. Moses said to God after God told him to go who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt so first Moses basically says that he's not good enough or he's not up for the task skip to verse 13. Moses said to God if I come to the people of Israel this is his second excuse if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name what shall I say to them so now Moses says that he doesn't know enough to be sent to do this skip to chapter 4 verse 1 for the third excuse 
Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So now Moses says that they won't take him seriously. Skip to verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So Moses says that he doesn't speak well enough. And so it seems to me that there's just something that had happened from that time that Moses left Egypt, where he had been, it seems, you know, second or third in, in the empire of the day, which would be Egypt. And he goes out and he spends these 40 years as a, as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And there's this incredible inadequacy or insufficiency that's built into Moses' heart so that when God call, comes to him and calls him to go, he just doesn't think that he can do something like this. And so he keeps making these excuses to God. And then look at verse 13 for the fifth one. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And so Moses kept pushing God until finally, at the height of his resistance, he says, just send someone else. And so the way I see this is Moses has made all these excuses. None of the excuses have worked. And so he, he finally just has to be outright defiant and just say, Lord, I don't want to do it. Just send someone else in my place. I mean, at least he used the word please, though, right? In verse 13, he's still trying to be respectful toward the Lord, but this doesn't make God happy, and that's not my opinion. Look at verse 14. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And go ahead and pause right there. These words are so important. I would say that these words about God being angry are the key to interpreting this account correctly. Because when God is angry at people, think about what he does and doesn't do. When God is angry at people, he doesn't bless them. What does he do with them? He disciplines them. And so what we're about to see is not, sadly, the way many people will teach this. We're not about to see God's mercy here. This is not a demonstration of God's grace. This is not God being compassionate to Moses. This is God angrily at Moses, putting up with his reluctance for so long that God finally says, you know what? You, you don't want to go by yourself. You, you're that convinced that I don't know what I'm doing and I, I can't call the right person to go do a task. I mean, I'm, I'm just not wise enough to know who should go to Egypt to do this well then fine why don't you go ahead and bring your brother with you so look at verse 14 look at the rest of the verse he said is there not aaron your brother the levite i know that he can speak well behold he is coming out to meet you and when he sees you he will be glad in his heart you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and i will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. When God is angry at us, and he disciplines us, one of the very common ways that God can discipline us is what? Allowing us to have what we want to our own detriment, when it is not in our best interests. And there are plenty of sobering examples of this. We'll look at a few in the next sermon. 
But this isn't God being gracious or merciful. This is God being judicial. Remember, he was angry at Moses about this. God doesn't, he doesn't, he's not pitying Moses at this moment. He doesn't say, well, I understand this is very difficult for you, Moses. And, and I, would, I would imagine many people struggling in your position. There's nothing like that. Instead, God was upset that Moses would be this reluctant to the call or the command that he had given him. Now, just think about it. Do you really think God wanted Aaron to go with Moses? No, he had never mentioned that up to this point. He never mentioned Aaron going with him until after Moses had pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Do you think Aaron would have went with Moses if Moses would have initially just said, okay, Lord, send me, kind of the way Isaiah responds in Isaiah 6. You can tell it was not God's will for Aaron to go with Moses because he didn't mention him until he'd been so defiant. And then here's what I want you to think about. Do you believe that Moses was later glad that his brother Aaron came with him and had this important position? Absolutely not. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and then listened to all of the wicked behavior at the base of the mountain because Aaron had constructed that golden calf, led the people to do so, and then made excuses about it. Well, you know, we just kind of threw in some gold, and then this golden calf popped out. I mean, remember, even after Aaron was confronted about his behavior, his response wasn't one of humility and repentance. It was still like, well, you know, the people did this, and, they're, and where were you, and you should have been here, and then we put this gold on the fire, and then this golden calf just sort of popped out. I really had nothing to do with it, Moses. It's just kind of created itself. All the excuses. Listen to this. Numbers 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, and they said to him, so this is Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam saying, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. When Aaron and Miriam were saying this to Moses, who do they sound like? They sound a lot like Korah. It's always bad when you sound like Korah, right? And so when Moses' brother is contesting his leadership and authority, do you think Moses might have thought back and said, you know, I really wish I had been more receptive to the Lord's will in my life and I hadn't been so insistent on having my will? And so I want to conclude with this. I I just want us to be thinking about this week and then for leading up to, to next week's sermon, how important it is for us to have soft, receptive hearts to the Lord. I mean, there's a reason that we're compared with clay because clay can be very soft and pliable or it can be very hard and stiff. And so this account, just like many others, where I see people insisting on having their will and then finally being able to have it, should cause us to want to be submissive and sensitive to God's will for our lives. We never want to keep pushing so intensely on having our will that when God has already made his will clear to us. And so just in the privacy of our own hearts, let's ask ourselves if there's anything that is our will that isn't really God's will. As I've been preaching this sermon, is there anything that the Lord would be convicting you of? Is there any area of your life that the Bible has made clear God is against, but we might keep pushing against it? So the worst that can happen when we're insisting on having something is not that God would keep saying no. The worst that can happen when we're insistent on having something that God is against is that he can finally let us have it, even to our own detriment. 
I'll be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I can pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, and we thank you for what we can learn from this son in this parable, this younger son, and hopefully apply to our lives, Lord, and, and from Moses' life and from the other examples we'll consider in the next sermon. Help us to be sensitive and have soft, teachable, receptive hearts toward you, Lord, aware of what you desire for us and that we wouldn't insist on having our, our own will. And if there be any areas of our lives for, for any of us where we have been insistent on having what we want, something that you have revealed is not your will for our lives, then I pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance, uh, that we would be convicted, and that we would turn back to that and pursue your will for us. Lord, I do thank you for how you record things in your word for us to learn from. Thank you for the example from this, uh, with this son as we look at, look at his example over the coming weeks, and we thank you for the revelation that we're going to be given uh, of your heart as we see the Father in this parable, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.